My name is Doug Horton, and you are at Harvest Bible Church. Uh, Here at Harvest, we love the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Um, Currently, Pastor Lance is going through the book of Luke, um, but as he said earlier, um, we're not going to be in Luke today. Um, Today, we're going to be in uh, Philippians. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And while we're turning there, um, what we're going to be talking about this morning is something kind of important, salvation. Um, A fancy college word for this is soteriology. Uh, So when you, if you ever go to seminary, the study of salvation is called soteriology is what we'll be in today. Now there's three main parts to soteriology or the study of salvation. Um, If you've been here long enough, I'm sure you've heard it before, but we're going to go over it quickly. The first one is justification. Justification is the moment of salvation where a person is pardoned of their sin debt and now allowed to enter into the Father's presence, not because of anything that they did or could have done or would have done, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You are justified. The blood of Christ washes over you and your disgusting, sinful, selfish person that could not bear to be in God's presence has been now washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And you are justified. That is the moment of salvation. The next part is something called sanctification. Sanctification is the process. So justification is sort of a moment. Sanctification is the process. The process of the removal of sin acts or sinful acts and motivations, along with the pursuit of righteous living directed and motivated by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So not only are you now convicted of sinful actions, but you are also encouraged unto righteousness and righteous actions. And this happens over time, right? Sanctification is a process. And then the third one, glorification. When the process of sanctification is complete and one is in complete conformity to the image and likeness of the glorified Christ and are freed from physical and spiritual defect, decay, illness, and death. That sounds pretty cool to me. Glorification, in other words, is what happens when believers die. So sanctification is what happens in between justification and glorification. When you're dead... Stick a fork in you, you're done. Sanctification is all done. You're finished cooking, okay? But there's a process, and today we're going to be going over that process, sanctification. This is the process of the removal of the sinful acts, okay? And it is what happens between justification and glorification. So, if you are now in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, let's go ahead and read it. Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is writing to a group of believers. The book of Philippians is not an evangelistic book. This isn't to uh, necessarily convert non-believers to believers. Paul's writing to a group of believers. 
back in, I think it's Acts 16, uh, one of Paul's missionary journeys. He finds himself in the city of Philippi and establishes a church. I think the year is about A.D. 50, 50. He's writing this letter 10 years later, about A.D. 60, maybe 61, while he's in jail. To those believers, he's writing it to those believers in Philippi who are now, he knows that this established church because he established it and these are believers and this is the process of sanctification. So he's not writing about justification, he's not writing about glorification, at least he isn't yet. And so this is about sanctification. So the first time I read this, um, very uh, similar to last week, I read it while I was at Criswell. I hadn't read the Bible really um, until I was at Bible college. Um, I'd only been a Christian less than a year. And so I read this for the first time and I was like, work out? Um, like working out? Like lifting weights kind of salvation? So I, gotta, I have to work out my, so I, okay, I got to work it out, right? I got to work out my salvation. And the assumption for most people that when they first read this, that being a workout is that believers can work at or work for their salvation. Well, the problem is that we all know that nobody can earn or work for their salvation. Christianity is not a works-based salvation. There's a bunch of them out there, but Christianity is not one of them. Well, if that's the case, what does Paul, or why does Paul want us to work out? Why does he want us to work out our salvation? I mean, if we're supposed to work out our salvation, then what's God's role? If we're supposed to earn it and work at it, then what's God's role? And honestly, what do we need the cross for? On the other hand, if we can't earn or work for our salvation, then what is our role? What are we supposed to do in the process of sanctification? And then you see on the flip side, Paul's saying that it is God who works in you, verse 13. It is God who works in you. Kind of like thinking that we're merely a lump of clay. In the sculptor's hand. And we don't really do anything. So I got some clay on a potter's wheel. My brother uh, was a sculptor. And so it's a mess. But um, clay doesn't do anything. You got to do it. You, you manipulate it. So God's working on you. And you're just a lump of clay. And what, this, what happens when you think of verse 12 and verse 13, it creates a tension. All God or all man. Are we supposed to do all the work? Does God do all the work? So there's a tension. Seemingly lead to some questionable theological conclusions if you were to misunderstand the context. We ask the question, what is the believer's role in sanctification? What is God's role in the believer's sanctification? We have some tension. I mean, if it's... Me, and I have to work it out, that's about me, and that's about my effort, it's about my work. And then you look at verse 13, it's about God, the faith that is given to us, and trust that God has given to us to have trust in Him. This is a difficult and seemingly impossible conundrum, but this is not the first time people have tried or attempted to rectify the tension between the process of sanctification. How much of me? How much of God? Commentators 
say that over the years, two camps have been established in this regard. Traditionally, these two sides in this debate are described as quietism, and on the other side, pietism. Generally, quietism is a side of passivity. This is the side that says, oh, it's all God. This is the lump of clay. They say, we can't. God can. One of their phrases, let go and let God. All of God, none of me. And then generally, pietism is the side of activity. Diligent effort by the believer under righteousness. Working on or working for purity. Little to know God and all of me. We're going to jump into quietism really quick. The role of the believer in quietism is to surrender unto God and he will give us victory over sin. We'll give our life to God and he moves and produces within us purity. Holiness is given to us by God, not by effort of the believer. They quote Galatians 2.20. Not I, but Christ. We are a lump of clay that surrenders to the potter who does all the work. Now, this is pretty alluring. You want to be a quietist, right? There's very, this is very alluring. Believers don't have to really do anything except plop themselves up on the potter's wheel. Get up on that potter's wheel, right? Wouldn't it be nice just to sit back and let the potter do his work? Can you see any potential problems with subscribing only to being a quietist? What happens when the believer inevitably sins, which we all do? Well, now what happens? What do you do now? We all sin. You going to blame God? Hey, I'm just a lump of clay. You know, God's working on me. Obviously, that's not my sin. Careful. Has the lump of clay somehow pulled itself off the potter's wheel? If it's all God and none of me, well, then whose fault is it when sin happens? Quietists would now have to blame the Lord for their sin. And when we know this isn't true. James 1, 12 through 15 says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterwards, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us, drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. We see James explaining here that the author of our sin is us. We, our desires, we allow ourselves to step into that temptation. And when, when you give into it and you let it grow and become sin, it becomes death. God is not the author of our sin. We are. Galatians 5, through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When the Holy Spirit resides within you, here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. We'll get into this a little bit more. But here's the evidence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. 
You can blame God for acting like that. You can blame God for being kind. You can blame God for being good, faithful, self-controlled. That's the stuff you can blame God for. Every time you have one of those moments, you go, oh God, thank you. That's all you, Lord. And you can blame yourself for when the opposite happens. If you need to know what that is, here's Galatians 5, 19 through 21. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Now, because of the passages in James and Galatians, we know that a view solely based in quietism is not theologically accurate nor doctrinally sound because God is not the author of our sin We are. Somehow the clay slipped off the potter's wheel. Furthermore, this passivity. If all we do is quietness is surrender, then what about all the scriptures that tell Christians to study, to pray, to read their Bibles, to care for others, to teach, to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to not forsake the gathering, to fast, to serve. Crucify your sins. Sounds pretty active to me. All of this takes large amounts of time and effort. How does the quietest rectify a life of passivity when the Bible is full of directives to be active? Now, pietism is on the other side. On the other hand, this movement came out of Germany in the 18th century and it was a reaction to the dead church at the time. It was the opposite of the quietest, had a very strong emphasis on Bible study. Holy living, practical Christianity, self-discipline, serving others, volunteerism, etc. They believe that believers must utilize all their mental and physical abilities, all their mind, soul, strength, in the matter of pursuing godliness. It takes everything you have and requires all the time you have to pursue holiness. Good works, practical living, being useful to your neighbors, all of this is emphasized. They would say, 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves, cleanse ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. Let us work, let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. They would say it's the believer's job to cleanse themselves. There's a lot of good that came out of this movement, as you can imagine. If you know anything about the Puritans who came over to America on that Mayflower, This should sound very familiar. A lot of these guys were pietists. Much of what America has been built on comes from this pietistic movement. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves. The early bird gets the worm. Many people think that these sayings come from the Bible. They don't. That's not in the Bible, y'all. Okay, that's from pietism. They come from the pietistic movement. Can you see the allure of the pietistic movement? I mean, you all have to do is do a bunch of check marks. Uh, hey, who doesn't like doing that to-do list? Check marks on that to-do list, right? I got that done, got that done, got that done. Man, God must love me, right? Main issue with pietism is the question of who gets the glory. Let me tell you something about glory. 
God does not like it when you steal his glory. Moses stole God's glory. He struck the rock, if you remember. God made Moses to lead the people into the promised land. And because Moses struck the rock and stole God's glory, God said, when they were just about to go into the promised land, he says, Moses, look at this promised land. Now lay down and die. That's Moses, y'all. God takes very serious his glory. Do not steal God's glory. But this is what the pietist struggles with. Because if you do the work, then you get to boast about yourself. We know this isn't biblical. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If God does the work, who do you boast in? Who gets the glory if God does the work? In other words, who gets the glory? You cannot earn your salvation because then you would get the glory. And also, again, what would be the point of Christ dying on the cross if you could earn or work for your salvation? Y'all remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were very pietistic. They loved that checklist. We were talking about it today. Uh, uh, Paul brought it up. It's uh, Philippians chapter 3, where Paul talks about all those check marks. Hey, I was born in this tribe, and I did this on the eighth day, and I was this, and I was raised in this, and check, 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 check. And he goes, I consider all of that garbage. Garbage. Christ himself goes after the Pharisees and the Sadducees, calls them whitewashed tombs, where they look pretty on the outside, but inside, death and decay. That's what pietism leads to, ultimately. It's an overemphasis on self-effort. Believing that all your spiritual progress is based on your ability to dedicate yourself, discipline yourself, to move yourself in the right direction will eventually lead to two inevitable ends. Pietism leads to two things. Number one, spiritual pride when you succeed. And we just talked about that, stealing God's glory. Number two, spiritual depression when you fail, which you will always fail. With spiritual pride, you steal God's glory, become an insufferable know-it-all. Nobody likes an insufferable know-it-all. We just talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When you inevitably sin, which you will do, comes spiritual depression. Because if you are the only source of your holiness, if you are the only source of your holiness, what happens when you sin? What are you left with? You failed Where do you go now? Despair, loneliness, hopelessness, shame. All of this washes over you in an incredibly unhealthy way. So we have quietism and overemphasis on, uh, overemphasis on this leads to an imbalance of correct doctrine because uh, all the believer does is plop down on that potter's wheel. But what happens when you, when you sin? Can't blame God. An overemphasis on pietism leads to an imbalance of correct doctrine. Because, of all, all, because it's all about the believer. And if it's done well, then you get prideful and you steal God's glory. But when it fails, which it always does, it leads to despair, depression, and hopelessness. So we have this tension now. So what, what is Paul talking about here? 
There's a, I just want you to think of a rubber band. There's a tension. You pull the tension of the rubber band all the way out. And on one side, you've got quietism. On the other side, you've got pietism. And if you, hold, if you overemphasize one too much, the rubber band stretches, stretches too much and it breaks. If you overemphasize the other one too much, it breaks. Somehow you have to maintain this tension. And overemphasizing uh, one over the other becomes problematic and unsustainable over a long enough period of time. Those of us who are more lazy will naturally be more attracted to quietism. Okay? Don't, don't look at your spouse. Okay? All right? You know who you are. Okay? Um, yeah, and, and obviously uh, those of us who are more driven, have a more A-type personality, will naturally be more attracted to pietism. And here's the beauty of the Lord. He will use, God will use quietism in the life of someone who is prone to works-based salvation in order to offer them some balance. God will put you, some of you who want to steal God's glory and, and, and maybe uh, have a pharisaical, uh, maybe a, what is it, a proclivity? And you want to be better than everybody else? You want to look down on everybody else? And watch how God will bring you down low. And bring you to the end of your own self-sufficiency. To where you have to cry out. Oh Christ, help me. Or even worse, pick up the phone and say, someone please help me. I can't do it on my own anymore. I need help. For the pietist, that's tough. That is a tough call. And that's a tough prayer for those who want to earn their salvation. And God will use quietism to balance those who are pietistic. And the the opposite is true as well. God will also convict a lazy person with pietism in order to offer them a measure of balance. I mean, you read the Bible anywhere. Serve, love. These are all commands to, to be active and to do things, right? Show up to church, right? If someone invites you to lunch, go, right? Sorry, introverts. Go, hang out. Love, invest, right? There's uh, all kinds of commands in the New Testament where um, the Lord is urging us to be active and a part of our sanctification process. So when the rubber band is at tension, you let go of one side because of the overemphasis of the other, the rubber band snaps and it hurts you. It hurts your theology, it hurts your doctrine. Hurts or it twists the approach you have to Scripture. So what is Paul talking about here? What does this have to do with soteriology? What does this have to do with sanctification? Great questions. We know that Paul is not crazy. We know Paul's not schizophrenic. Paul, if you read the book of Romans, his logic is pure. He's not, you know, um, he doesn't give in to fits of uh, irrational and unreasonable things. And we know he's a, a very solid guy. Also, he saw Jesus Christ, spoke with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was taken up into the third heavens. I mean, the guy knows things. We can trust what he's saying. So what's going on here? It seems that there's two sides that he's talking about. And what does that mean? So to do that, let's do a little bit of background. The city of Philippi was founded in 356 BC by King Philip II. Now, if you remember, last week we talked about King Philip. Um, he was the dad of someone that we talked a lot about last week, Alexander the Great. Okay? King Philip II was Alexander's dad. 
The city of Philippi was most likely established where it is because of its proximity to the gold mines of a mountain that's in the area. I'm going to give it a shot. Pangeo? Pangeo? I tried saying it in the youth group, and they were like, Pancake! Mount Pancakes! So, Mount Mount Pancake has a lot of gold in it, y'all. King Philip wanted to make sure that he had a firm grip on that gold supply coming from the mining operation. As a result, he established the city of Philippi in the shadow of this mountain, um, which was basically a faucet of money. It was just free money coming out of this mountain. And as a king, you like money, right? Um, He actually named the city after himself, Philippi. So anytime you think of Philippi or the Philippians, you know who established it, why it's there. Now, there's the mountain, Mount Pancake. Okay, it's a different view. And the, the people of Philippi would have known the reference in verse 12 that Paul was talking about, as there was most likely a lot of miners in that city. Now, I don't mean miners as people, you know, 18 or under. Um, we're not talking about children. We're talking about people who dig out of the ground, dig for precious metals. Miners, okay? Mining is incredibly difficult and requires a lot of effort. Moreover, most of the gold isn't just sitting on top. You don't just walk up, you know, at the end of the rainbow and there's a big pot of gold. Oh, I'm a miner. I got my gold. Very difficult to get the gold. It's deep within the earth. Google told me that many of the gold mining companies that dig gold will find gold to be somewhere in between 5,000 and 12,000 feet down. The deepest one in South Africa, 12,800 feet down into the earth. I looked up a few images just to see what mining for gold looks like. I don't know about you guys, but deep down in the earth, dark. I mean, this is the stuff of nightmares as far as I'm concerned. I would hate doing this. Hard, hard labor. They got to dig deep because that's where the gold deposit is. You see, this is where the gold is. It's already there in the earth. Don't miss this. It's already deposited there in the mountain. And it must be brought out. The gold is already there. It's already been planted. It's already been deposited. And it must be brought out. Deep in the mountain, the golden jewels are already there. And it requires hard Diligent, sustained work to extract out what is planted within. So you have the mountain and the gold. The miners have to work out of the mountain the gold that is already inside. There's that word. Verse 12. Work out your salvation. The miners have to work out the gold to bring forth, to extract out, to bring out, to mine out, to make manifest on the outside that which is already on the inside. In this same way, Paul is telling Christians that they are to mine out of their lives what God has richly deposited in the manner of salvation. To bring something to fulfillment, to bring it to its fullness, to bring something to completion, to work out. In other words, 
The salvation that God has already planted within you needs to be brought out all the way to its fulfillment, to its fullness, to its completion. If you remember, we're talking about the process of sanctification. It's a process. Hard, sustained, diligent work. There's a command for these things. We are to produce such precious pieces of personal character from what God has planted in us in the manner of salvation. We are to extract out, to draw out in our daily lives what God has richly and lovingly put in. The gold is already in the mountain. All you have to do is go find it and bring it out. Salvation has been deposited in the believer. And it has to be worked out. Has to be drawn out, mined out. Believers are responsible for making manifest on the outside through our diligent, hard, and sustained effort what God has deposited or planted within us in salvation. Romans chapter 619. For just as you presented the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your body parts as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. There's that fancy word. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Colossians 3, 8 through 10. But now you also rid yourselves of all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've stripped off the old with its evil practices and have put on the new self. That's part of the sanctification process. Putting on the new self and letting go of the old. This is how you act. This is how believers act in the process of sanctification. All these scriptures here, has a, they all have an implication of responsibility. The assumption is that believers indeed have a role to play in their sanctification. We have a job. Believers are called to live holy, to have holy living, to work out what is within. We are held responsible for our part. We are held responsible for our part. Matthew Chapter 25, verses 34 through 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. That's very active. And God is going to hold you responsible for the things that you do. Because if the Holy Spirit is residing in you, there's a process of working it out, to mining it out, to extracting it out. To bring outside the precious treasure of salvation that God has already put in the heart of the believer. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 Do you not know? 
that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, so they do it to obtain a perishable wreath. It's like a trophy. But we are an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not to run aimlessly. I box in such a way to avoid hitting air. I strictly discipline. I beat my body. I pummel my body is what he says to make, to make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul is exhibiting maximum effort. It's a lot of effort. Those miners, remember those pictures of those miners? That's hard work. It's difficult, hard, sustained work. Running, boxing, beating his own body. 2 Timothy 2, 4 through 7. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now he's talking about glorification. On that day. What is he going to get on that day? When sanctification process is finished, after he has fought the good fight, after he has finished the course, after he's kept the faith, after all of that in the future there laid up for me is a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Ooh, it's going to be a good day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You can see Paul explaining the process of sanctification as running a race, as being in a fight, beating his own body into submission in order that the beautiful deposit of salvation will be brought ultimately out in glorification on that day. Now back to Philippians. Verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What has God planted within you? That needs to be worked out. What does God put in there? 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? What has God deposited within the believer? The Holy Spirit. And who put that? Who put the Holy Spirit there? Well, let's see here what he says. Whom you have from God. So who put God there? God did. God put God in there. That Holy Spirit is going to work its way out in the process of sanctification. Yeah, we answered that. You know, we often think of heaven being a place where we can fly and run and dance on the streets of gold and, I don't know, have wings and play harps or whatever. I don't know. All that stuff might be true. I don't know. Okay? But that isn't the reason why we should be excited about heaven. Heaven will be wonderful because we're going to get to be with Jesus. That's the goal. That's what's deposited. That's what's planted in the hearts of the believers. It's God himself. Once this process of sanctification starts at the moment of justification, we're becoming more and more like Christ. And guys, that is the goal. That is the goal.
Leviticus 11.45. For I am the Lord your God, brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Speak to all the congregations of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20.26. Thus you are to be holy. To me, for I, the Lord, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I've set you apart from the peoples of mine, uh, to be mine. And then in the New Testament, Peter quoting Leviticus, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God wants you to act like God. He wants you to speak like him. He wants you to talk like him. He wants you to walk like him. He wants you to act like him. You know, Christians mean, Christian means little Christ. And as you grow and you mature in your faith, what happens is that deposit of of God in you starts to work its way out. And you'll start noticing things. Things that you didn't do before. Things that you used to say, you don't say anymore. Things you used to do, you don't do anymore. And things that you've never done, you start doing. You start acting more like God. And you start to almost surprise yourself. Hey, I got through that whole day and I didn't yell at one person. I didn't, I didn't get upset one time on my drive home. That's a win for me. I don't know about y'all, but that's a win. God has deposited the Holy Spirit within us. And the longer we remain faithful, the longer we act out our faith, the more we ought to be acting, looking, and behaving like Him, capital H. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 again. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The evidence of the deposit of the Holy Spirit is explained here. Again, Colossians 3, 8 through 10. But now you also put them all aside. This is where you ought not to be acting like this anymore over time. Over the period in the course of your spiritual life, this should be diminished over time. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie, since you've laid aside the old self with evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, Yeah, stop acting like your old self. Start acting more like Jesus, as it is Jesus who has been deposited within your heart. Verse 13 of Philippians chapter 2, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, some of you might still be struggling with this concept, which is okay. Um, It took me a long time to really kind of wrap my mind around this. Um, And so I found a, excuse me, a parable that I think might be helpful. And this is the one that uh, um, Joel was uh, trying to read for everyone. But there's a wonderful parable to help explain what Paul's talking about. So if we could all turn there. Um, this is uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. So I just love that sound, the turning of pages of the Bible. It reminds me of rain a little bit. I don't know. Is that just me? I like it. Okay. 
Verse 20, follow along. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in the vineyard. He, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day. Denarius, by the way, is a full day's work. Full day's wage. That's a denarius, okay? Um, he sent them to his vineyard. And he went out about, oh, sorry, he went out about the third hour, saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to those, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give to you. And so they went again. He went out again. So he goes out and hires all these people all throughout the day. All right. Uh, let's see here. Verse eight. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired at the 11th hour came, each one received a full day's wage, a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. So let's hold on here. All right, so let's look at some of the players in, the, in this parable. We got the landowner, right? We got the early morning laborers. These guys were hired at 7 a.m. Then you got the next guys hired about 9 a.m. The next guys hired about noon Next guy's hired about 3 p.m. Next guy's hired about 5 p.m. That's the 11th hour. Then evening time, about 7 p.m., 6 or 7 p.m. So the guys at 7 a.m., they finally show up. They're last to get paid. The guys who got paid for one hour of work from 5 to 6 or maybe 5 to 7, they got a full day's wage. So the guys that got hired at 7 a.m. are going, oh, man, if they're getting a full day's wage and they've only worked one hour, I'm going to get paid a lot. That's what they're thinking. Maybe that's what you'd be thinking, too. I know that's what I'd be thinking. You know, sunburnt, sweaty, tired, 7 a.m., 7 p.m., and they're getting paid a full day's wage for one hour of work? Oh, yeah. I'm going to be like, this is jackpot time. Lottery. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Walk up. Same pay. Same pay as the other guys. Look at what it says here. Verse 11. When they received it, they what? They said, thank you so much. You're the best landowner everywhere. We just think you're the best, right? Aces. No. They grumbled. They said, these last men only work one hour. You made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the scorching heat all day. But he, this is the landowner, verse 13, answered and said to them, Friend, am I do, I, I, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius at 7 a.m.? Back at 7 a.m. when we were talking about all this and I hired you, didn't you agree for a day's wage? Verse 14, take what's yours and go. But I wish to give you, or give to you this last man as the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what I own? What's mine? I can do whatever I want. It's my money, my vineyard, my money. We decided this a long time ago back at 7 a.m. So not only did we decide it, but hey, guess what? It's my money. I can do whatever I want with it. I can burn it if I want to. Verse 16. So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So. The reward was promised before the laborers even stepped on the field. The landowner had already set aside the reward before he ever asked the laborers to go to work. The reward was guaranteed to the laborers before they started working. 
The laborers couldn't change the reward as it wasn't theirs to change. That was the prerogative of the landowner. The reward had no correlation to the amount of labor that was done. No one got more for doing more and no one got less for doing less. Even though the reward was promised before the labor was done, labor was still required. Even though the reward was already promised, labor was still required. So who are the players in this parable? Who's the landowner in this parable? If you're thinking God, you're right. It is. It's God. Who are the laborers? That's us. That's us Christians. As believers. What's the reward? What's the denarius? Salvation. Salvation. Believers have their names written in that book of life before the vineyard was ever even created. Revelation 3, 5, Revelation 20, 15, Revelation 21, 27, Philippians 4, 3, Psalm 69, 28, on and on and on. And look at this. That book was written before the foundation of the world. The reward was already promised before the laborers even got on the field. It was written before the foundations of the world. This means that salvation was promised before believers ever stepped on the field. That God has already set aside salvation before he ever asked Christians to go to work. That salvation was guaranteed to believers before they even started working. The believers cannot change their salvation as it isn't theirs to change. That's the prerogative of the owner. Or the author of the book. And even though that salvation is promised and is freely given by God, labor is still required. You have to work out what has been deposited in. You must work out, extract out, bring out what God has richly deposited in you before the foundations of the world. It was promised to you before the foundations of the world, but you still have to do work on the labor. You still have to labor in the vineyard. Remember, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need Lance. Doesn't need Moses. Doesn't need Abraham. God didn't need any of those people. God's God. But he does choose to work through us. Doesn't he? God chooses to work through us. In order for God to work through you, he must first work in you and work on you. That's the process of sanctification. As you lend yourself to this process, you will find that you will become more and more available to the Lord. As you grow and mature in your faith, you are going to become more and more available to what God wants you to do, not what you want to do, what God wants you to do. And over time, you'll start noticing you're acting more like Christ. People may come up to you and say something, and you go, what? you know what? That is kind of weird. I haven't, I haven't done that in a while. I haven't said that in a while. I haven't acted like that in a while. 
Huh, I wonder what's going on. I'll tell you what's going on. It's the process of sanctification. God's working out what was richly deposited within you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of that working out or the extracting out is again Galatians 5, 22 through 23, the fruits of the Spirit. So that means if you have noticed, for, the, for those of you who have been Christians for your whole life, I would say give yourself a 10-year kind of matrix. If in 10 years you've noticed that you're more loving, think of yourself 10 years ago. Better yet, if you have a hard time with that, ask your spouse. They'll tell you. Are you more loving? Are you more joyful? Are you more peaceful? Are you more patient? Are you more kind? You find yourself to be more faithful, more gentle, more self-controlled. Then I tell you, if that is the case, even if it's just a little bit, because some of us are pretty stubborn, aren't we? I will tell you rejoice because the Holy Spirit is in you. You have a deposit of salvation within you. And if that evidence is working itself out, rejoice because you are elect. Your name is in the book of life. And if that isn't a cause for joy or an encouragement, I don't know what is. Do you guys remember when, um, oh, his name just left me. It was uh, someone who came and um, was going to preach for Lance. And he told us that he had an inoperable brain tumor. What was his name? Willie. Willie. And he said, he goes, uh, I'm having surgery next week. And he had this whole sermon prepared. And he goes, I just threw out that sermon. I just want to tell you my testimony and tell you how good God is. And he goes, after that surgery, I may, I may never see my family again. I may never see my family again, he said. He goes, but if, if I die and I go to heaven, that's a win. If I don't die and I get to spend more time with my family, that's also a win. He goes, I can't lose. I can't lose. That comes from someone who has the Holy Spirit. That's someone who knows where he's going and where he's been and knows that the Holy Spirit is at work in him, the process of sanctification where he can say with boldness, death is knocking on the door, come on in. Come on if you're coming, because I can't lose. If I get to spend more time with my family, awesome. If I get to go spend time with Jesus, even better. Where do you get that kind of confidence? That comes from a process of sanctification working itself out. It's so beautiful. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. Even though this reward has already been promised, the process is not for the faint of heart. It's not easy to come to the conclusion that you may have to say goodbye to your family for the last time. That's not easy. That takes work. Diligent, sustained, hard work. It it just doesn't come. Last week I I talked about that bird, right? Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, but they never ever worry about where their food's coming from, right? But you never see a bird sitting on the branch with its mouth open waiting for God to pour seeds in his mouth. Oh, where's my seeds, Lord? Oh, how often do we do that? Right? Where, where's my job, Lord? Where's my promotion, Lord? Where's this? Where's that? Oh, pour it in my mouth. Right? No, 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 no. We have a role. We have a role to play. 
You've got to have to maintain that tension. You cannot overemphasize one over the other. You have to maintain that tension. That's difficult in and of itself. The process of sanctification requires maximum effort. Maximum effort. So I'll leave you with this. Rest. Rest. Rest in your salvation, knowing that if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, there is nothing you can do to have it removed. It's done. Done deal. You, and this is another thing I'll tell you. I said this last week too, and I'll say it again. I, I can't tell you how many people call me and say, I think I've done it. I think I've lost my salvation. I finally did the thing. I, tempt, I played with fire too long. Pastor, I'm, now I'm burnt. God will never accept me. It's too much. And I said, you know, I get these calls sometimes late at night. I say, okay, so you think you did something that's going to make you lose your salvation. Yeah. So that's conviction of the Holy Spirit. Congratulations. Good night. (laughs) Your salvation has nothing to do with your feelings, y'all. I don't care how it feels. If your name's in the Lamb Book of Life, that's it. It's done. Okay? Don't don't call me. (laughs) I already know some of you are... (laughs) This is it, Pastor Doug. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, there's nothing you can do to have it removed. While at the same time, we must work the fields. We have to work those fields. We are in God's vineyard. He is the landowner, and he requires work. He requires work. So we got to work those fields, whatever they might be, whatever God has put in front of you. And you all know what that is. Some of you right now, the Holy Spirit might be conjuring up inside of you right now what you know you ought to be doing. And for you, it's different for for them and all the rest of it. It It might be something very specific. But you know. And that's why the reward is always the same. For those of you who were born in a Christian home and raised your whole life and lived your whole entire life in a Christian family, and then you think of the thief on the cross. How long was he on that vineyard? Just a moment. But guess what? He got the same reward. Same reward as those of us who have been laboring since 7 a.m. Yeah? So let's pray. Father, you are so good. And there's so much to your scripture. Lord, the, the, um, Martin Luther said that your, your word, Lord, is like uh, dealing with children. The more, we, the more attention we give to your word, the more it requires There's just so much. Your word is alive and it's active. And there's so many wonderful layers to dig deep. Lord, let us never lose our sense of wonder and awe for this incredible word that you've left us. Let it continue to transform our lives. Let us, Lord, have a a sense of uh, rest, knowing that our salvation is given to you, are given to us by you freely. But at the same time, Lord, give us a sense of urgency to be about your business. Let us hold the tension, Lord, and always look to you. So, Father, we pray all this in your son's name, Jesus, and all God's people said. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May his countenance be raised upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.